Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project, and welcome back to Republicans Defeating Trump for our July 10th weekly roundup. I'm Ron Steslow. Today on our panel, we have independent political strategist Reed Galen and our captain on this ship. Hello, Reed. Hey, Ron. And veteran ad maker, Republican media consultant, and author of the New York Times bestselling book, Everything Trump Touches Dies, Rick Wilson. Thanks for being on again, Rick. Hey, how are you, Ron? Doing great. So on today's episode, we're going to talk about Mary Trump's upcoming book, Trump doubling down on defending the Confederate flag and his criticism of the CDC guidelines for reopening schools. To get us started today, I want to talk about a book that's been set to release uh, next week, written by Donald Trump's niece, Mary, entitled Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. Mary Trump is also a clinical psychologist, and on Tuesday, several members of the media started releasing stories about the book after receiving an advanced copy. Anecdotes from the book range from Trump giving his niece and nephew odd Christmas presents, Trump paying someone else to take his SATs, his older brother dumping a bowl of mashed potatoes on his head for being a brat, to more sinister, like committing tax fraud to increase the inheritance Trump received from his parents' estate and cheating his niece out of millions of dollars of her inheritance. So Rick, I want to start with this quote from the book. This is far beyond garden variety narcissism. Donald is not simply weak. His ego is a fragile thing that must be bolstered every moment because he knows deep down that he is nothing of what he claims to be. How much of this do you think plays into him lashing out when he's criticized? Oh, I I think it's central. I think, I think it's absolutely definitional to who and what he is. He has got a, he has got a, a, a paper thin veneer around him all the time of superiority. He knows who he really is. He's a guy who's of, of middling intelligence from Queens. He's been drifting from one scam to the next to boost his ego for, for, for decades now. And the reason he's going to be so sensitive to this book is it peels back that, that reality TV show image that a lot of people had of this CEO figure, this, this titan of industry, this brilliant negotiator, and shows that he's a venal, scummy, kind of abusive guy who is descended from a kind of venal, scummy, abusive guy. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, yeah, I mean, my, my take is some magical elf dropped one on my doorstep, so I'll, you know, it, who knows how these things happen. But I would say that it, it sort of reinforces what we already knew uh, about the guy, but I think that uh, the way Rick described about peeling back the onion is, is really a great way to describe it, because as you, especially as you read the, the, the opening passages about the, the home life uh, that they, you know, that they led under Fred and Mary, uh, the president's uh, mom and dad, you know, it was just a, it was a loveless, emotionless place in which uh, the father was detached and cared only for work. Uh, the mother was just unable to provide any emotional support uh, for her children. And it was this very divided and hierarchical place where the women had their place and the men had their place. Uh, and, you know, never, ne- as I think Rick likes to say, never the twain shall meet. Um, but I think also what it shows is that it ga- it gives a real baseline understanding of why Trump has done the things he's done, not only since being president, <clears throat> but before. But I think I, what my fascinating conclusion was is that he always did things 
in a way that were so beyond the edge of the envelope in is in terms of behavior that people were so sort of shocked that they just let him roll through because they didn't know what else to do. And I think you see that now in in the presidency. And I think that not only um, you know, what we've seen is that, you know, so many of our institutions were sort of bolstered by the concept and the idea that people were going to do things the way that they'd always done them. And Trump came in and did what he always has done through his life, as explained in the book, which is just come in like a bulldozer and say, dare people to stop him. And very rarely do people have that capacity. And of course, he doesn't actually drive the bulldozer. He just turns it on and hits the gas and wherever it goes, it goes. And so I thought it was a fascinating exploration into uh, the psychology of the guy, but I think also really doubles down on the things that you've seen that the, the types of advertising, the types of messages we've driven to him, you can now, I think, even more clearly understand why they've been so effective. Yeah, I'm, I'm really struck by how comfortable Trump seems to be with lying uh, in, in this, because Mary gives this example of, of Donald telling Melania that Mary had a comeback story because she dropped out of college, which was true, and had a drug problem, which she says is false. And she writes, by conflating my dropping out of college and his hiring me to write his book while throwing in a fictional drug addiction, he concocted a better story that somehow had him playing the role of my savior. So this is to either of you, but how do we see this same behavior play out in his presidency where he he positions himself as the savior for almost as a firefighter for a fire that he started? Oh, first off, he is a fabulist. In everything he sure. does. Yeah. Donald Trump cannot do anything but lie about himself, about his role in things. And he has gotten away with it for so many years. He's he's achieved this um this sort of exhaustion level in DC where the even his own White House staff, they just roll their eyes. They're like, and they know he's bullshitting. They know he's lying. They know he's just making stuff up. We're gonna have a cure in two weeks. You know, all these things that he does um have become so a part of him that it's sort of priced into the political equation. That when he's running his mouth, you know, when his mouth is moving, he's lying. But he does like to, to sort of have this narrative of the biggest, the best, the greatest, mm-hmm. you know, the most important, the, the 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 only. And those are things that you see in the Mary Trump book that were definitely driven by his father's marketing um, mm-hmm. philosophy from the 1940s and 50s, where Fred mm-hmm. Trump would always say, these are the largest apartments, the most luxurious, the most mm-hmm. beautiful except uh, no black people, please. You know, oh. it, 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 so that's where Donald gets a lot of this from. And, and as you see from this book, Fred Trump was sort of the, the supervillain origin story of Donald. But yeah. And one thing on the, on the apartment piece is that there was in the way that Mary Trump illustrates, it was so perfectly. And of course I will butcher it here was that the lobbies of the buildings were broad and expansive and welcoming um, to distract from the fact that your apartment was a, a shitty like shoebox that he <laughs> wasn't going to fix up unless like you you absolutely complain and then Fred would show up and basically you know in his shirt sleeves and basically say you're full of shit and you know walk off not fixing the problem the, a shiny veneer but no substance well and yeah and, be... and let me let me say one more thing that I thought was a fascinating yeah, exploration yeah. on her part was the idea that for most of his life and and she it's 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 in some ways metaphorical in some ways literal you know donald trump has institutionalized himself so within the trump organization 
you know, he was, he, he, he built this cocoon around himself of family, very trusted advisors, henchmen, um, you know, media, media lackeys, whatever it was. Um, so he was always, you know, three or four steps removed from the real world. Uh, and again, in that context, the only people he was harming were, uh, you know, probably the contractors he didn't pay. Um, but in the context of the White House, she says he's also institutionalized, which frankly may be a good thing because the White House is such a cloistered environment, but that there's only so much he can do and say on any given day um, that if he wasn't there, it might be worse. Um, but I think that, tr- f- frankly, you know, the people who were, you know, the Committee to Save America, whether or not it was Mattis or Kelly, McMaster, all of those folks, like they're long gone right now. You know, you've got the the family, Mark Meadows, uh, Kaylee McEnany. And I think to Ron, I think it was to your point. The idea is like that his ego must be salved all the time. Right. But it's a demand he makes of his people. And then he goes out and contradicts them. Right. No, the president was joking. I don't joke. I was, you know, the president didn't really mean what he said. Yes, I did. But see, they can't not do it, right? So it's it's the, it's this terrible, you know, terrible, terrible cycle of you must do what I need you to do for my ego, but I will never, there's no corresponding um, respect, certainly. There's no corresponding support, certainly. No, no corresponding loyalty because it is ultimately, a, uh, you know, he, it is a Trump-centric world uh, in his mind. And it always has been. And frankly, he's gotten away with it for 74 years. And you mentioned Kelly McEnany and, and White House institutions, uh, and and on Tuesday she stated that she hadn't read the book, uh, but also claimed at the same time, "quote It's a book of falsehoods." So, how did we how did we get to the point where the White House press secretary is refuting books that she hasn't read? And what does it mean more broadly when neither journalists nor the American people can trust the person at that podium? Speaking of institutions, and maybe you can speak to a little bit about the decline of that role uh, or the function of, of of that person in the White House. Well, um, I mean, that job just, has that that job has always been, you know, as Tribune of the West Wing. So, I mean, there, you know, you regardless of who stood up there, you know, you're always going to get whatever the best version of the president's plan or program or position on something is. So that's not unusual. Uh, I think what's what's more different is that you know. Right from the start, from Sean, I mean, literally from day one, the first time that Sean Spicer ever did a briefing, right, he had to go out and literally lie through his teeth about how many people Trump had at his inaugural, right? And so, like, where we are now is is not a surprise. It's just a continuation of three years. And remember, uh, Sarah Huckabee, you know, she made it her stock and trade to find new and different ways to lie. So, um, you know, we're not, you know, and those were, quote unquote, the good days, Right. We're now in the bad days, uh, and I think that they've brought McEnany in because they know that they can't put Trump back up on the podium on a, on a daily basis. And he, even in his sort of twisted world, you know, understands he can't do that anymore. So they stick her out there and make her take all the arrows. Yeah. And look, she has a benefit for them. And that benefit is shamelessness. That, that, he values that now as much as loyalty. He loves the fact that she will go out there and do this little performative hissy fit and throw her papers down and uh, on the podium and storm off, you know, as if she's deeply offended. Uh, and it's all meant for, at this point, they're not playing to anybody else, but the Fox audience at night, they're not playing to anybody else, but Trump Twitter. That's the only you know role she really has. There's no news being, being committed there at the white house. And so because of that, 
it's um it, it's performative like i said it, it's not she's not doing the role of white house press secretary um for an administration or for an institution she's doing it to satisfy the need for content um on trump right media outlets yeah and can i just uh, take a couple steps back ron on the please book? do um, is, you know, one thing that I did note too, is that again, that, you know, as I mentioned this household that was devoid of love and emotion and everything else. And I think what you've seen is that the guy, um, you know, probably, uh, experienced a lot of pain as a kid. Right. Um, and that pain went unaddressed because his parents weren't capable of, of dealing with it. And I think, you know, my amateur armchair psychologist says that that pain, uh, you know, has twisted to some sort of anger and resentment. And ugliness that, you know, there's no unwinding at this point, right? The guy's 74 years old. Um, there is no, there is, you know, it's like, you know, is there any good left in Darth Vader? Like there is no good left in this Darth Vader. It's, it is what it is, right? He's not, yeah. he's not killing the emperor anytime soon. I also think that, that you see, you know, Trump playing out with his kids in the book a little bit, right? Some of the same kind of abusiveness. There was one scene that particularly struck me uh, was he would have, he would have Ivana, Ivanka sit on his lap while Don Jr. and Eric wrestled, and whoever the kid that was being penned down, Donald would kick them and insult right. them. And, and it just wow. struck me. It was just one of those scenes. I was just like, you know, wow. that shit runs downhill. That abuse runs downhill. And it clearly yeah. is not something that he's... that, that Sure. Well, you know, and some then, people get... The pathology gets so thick, they can never escape from it. Right. And they're, you know, first and foremost, that scene sounds like... Uh, you know, the uh, succession show on HBO, you know, bore on the floor, right? Where, <laughs> the, where the patriarch makes oh, the guys man. roll around on the floor. That's um, exactly what I thought of. But um, also, I think, you know, there was that there was that Trump TV thing that I think their campaign puts on where the president was being interviewed by Don Jr. And you could just tell, I don't know how they edited it to make it as least bad as they could, but you could tell the contempt for him, you know, for his son. Oh, yeah. Even when Don Jr. said, uh, you know, all right, who's your favorite kid? And, you know, we all we all know it's Ivanka. And the guy's in Trump's like, yeah, funny guy. No, you're all my favorite. Like totally like, you know, devoid of emotion. Yeah. No, you're really all right. my favorite. It was clearly not true. Um, so it's just, you know, I mean, I think you're right. I think that these are it's again, if you if you were never taught how to accept love and compassion and emotion there's no possible way you're going to transmit that to others and i mean and it's it's you know that's and the last piece is the whole idea that you know he he definitely inherited from fred trump which is if i win then you lose and if you win in any way no matter how small or large i lose and so everything is a zero sum game now it's not a, it's not a stretch to say that washington dc politics has been a zero sum game for some time um, they at least per- tried to pretend that it wasn't. Uh, but now you have a chief executive for whom that is a personal, you know, belief that if any way somebody else gets a chance to say, I get credit for something, then he has somehow lost. Uh, and again, if you're sitting in the corner office of Trump Tower, that's one thing because, you know, the, the number of people, however, you know, they may be affected is relatively small. Uh, the difference now is that if 330 million Americans win, Donald Trump sees himself as as having lost, uh, and that's uh, I, don't, I I don't even know what the psychological word is for that other than banana phones. So on Monday, Trump took aim at NASCAR, falsely claiming that their recent ban of the Confederate flag led to their worst television ratings 
ever, which seems to be truly one of the worst insults that Trump could muster. But on Tuesday, Trump doubled down on the Confederate flag when he stated that flying the Confederate flag is a quote unquote freedom of speech. In another interview on Tuesday, Trump claimed that we are in a culture war. Read, what is the strategy in continuing to defend the Confederate flag? Or am I being too generous by assuming that there is a strategy? Well, it is, but not in the conventional sense. So I think, you know, if you go back to, it's probably five years ago, almost to the day, as he came down the gilded escalator at Trump Tower, remember that he started his presidential run talking about immigrants as rapists and murderers and killers and drug dealers. Um, you know, the, the language of racism, race baiting, division, ugliness, us versus them. And that's where he is now, because ultimately that's who he is. Um, he was really buoyed on this cushion of the of a good economy for three years. Uh, and it, it sort of allowed Trump to continue his lucky streak. Unfortunately, um, the COVID-19 piece does not care about Trump's lucky streak or anything else. And so it's it came rampaging through. Of course, the irony being that if he had paid attention to the people that were telling him it was going to be bad, he'd be in a hell of a lot better shape now. And we probably have a lot less dead people. Um, <clears throat> but I think what you're seeing is, and this is something that when we dropped our uh, flag of treason ad, I don't know how long ago it was now, they all sort of run together at this point was that we knew that there was a decision he was going to have to make and we ultimately knew which decision he would he would he would go with which is if you stand with the flag you stand with division and disunion and treason and oppression and slavery and if you denounce that flag as those things then he will create a real problem with his base which more and more of is is frankly uh you know centered in the old confederacy at this point, that he was going to have a lot of trouble with those exurban and rural voters who very well might, you know, agree with that, regardless of where they live vis-a-vis -vis the Mason-Dixon line. And of course, he made the wrong decision, you know, strolled right into the box canyon, and now he's perfectly happy to sort of shoot it out like, you know, Butch and Sundance, um, you know, to just, you know, all the way to the end. And so I think his presidency could end the same way his presidential run began. And, you know, I think taking on NASCAR, you know, it's just the thing he does. He can't he can't have anybody yeah. disagree with him. Um, I think the fact that NASCAR stood with Bubba Wallace repeatedly, I think, is a great statement for them. Um, and I think yeah. that, you know, ultimately, all sports are going to be, you know, NASCAR has been declining for a little while. I don't think it has anything to do with the Confederate flag or anything else. I think there's just trends change. Um, but again, it goes it goes to the idea that anybody who takes him on must be attacked. Um, in this case, when he attacks NASCAR, you know, he is in some ways attacking his base, but I'm not sure that he understands that or even cares, frankly. Look, the culture war is all he has left. The economy is in is is on a precipice. The you know, the resurgence of COVID is coming back stronger than ever. Trump needs something to throw out there. He needs some red meat out there. And so, yes, he'll he he and he's also decided, advised by people around him, that the secret to this election is not to try to win uh, a, a broad coalition, but to do the Republican base and juice it as hard as you can and bring out and bring out low propensity Republican voters. And I'm sorry, that is a that is a dead end strategy for a lot of reasons, but it is certainly one that that for him it seems like the only thing he's got left. So his goal with fanning the racial animus and the and this culture war is is really just to galvanized support he already has absolutely uh, and it, it but but it's a declining fraction of uh it's a declining fraction of a of a declined party 
that is that is shrinking quickly, and it's a demographic as as Reed correctly says, it's a box canyon. You know, yeah. you there are only so many fifty five plus non college white dudes in the swing states that you can gin up for Trump, and and that's the that's the that's the play for this particular issue is non college educated rural white guys. It, you know, in the South and up and Midwest, it's just not, there's just not a, the numbers aren't there. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if this was the central issue of their lives. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is not 1948. This is not 1968. This is not even 1988. I think that a lot of the arguments he's now making are the, you know, to, to put just a, a an ugliness on it is the, they are coming to get you. Right. Yeah. Um, the law and order, you know, you know, the, the gaslighting, the, the, the dog whistles, all of that stuff. I think the difference is now is that, you know, all things considered crime is relatively speaking low. Um, you know, especially in the suburbs where maybe it's, you know, theft, uh, you know, those sorts of things. Um, you're a lot like more likely to get your, you know, your identity stolen from, you know, a Russian hacker than you are to have your car broken into. And so I just don't think it's an it's not, it's just not a reality that I think ever a existed, but b has been you know it's been so far out of the even the realm of possibility for so long that I think a lot of voters you know look I'm 44 I bet a lot of my friends see that as just repellent and just blatantly false and so they're just not going to buy it. So before we leave this topic, uh, uh, there are there are a few things, or quite a few things that are protected by freedom of speech, including flag burning, uh, that are obviously offensive but how sound is the freedom of speech argument for defending confederate flags and i don't mean legally uh how do you how do you think about uh how does that play to the people that he's talking to and maybe even the people who aren't already with him oh well look i mean this is a a nation where where freedom of speech is protected in an almost unique way globally speaking and you know, you're free to be an asshole in this country. <laughs> right. And many people take you, that opportunity. Free, and, 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 right. And many people exercise that freedom to be an asshole every damn day. Um, but you're not, but, but, but you're not free in this country to do that without consequence. You're not free in this country to do that anymore. Um, without, without people saying, you know, if you're going to, you know, hoist the Confederate flag outside of your campaign rallies, uh, we're going to take a pass. And and that is something that is you know if you go outside of a of, of a lot of these Trump rallies, particularly before COVID, you know it looked like it looked like you know Stonewall Jackson was assembling his troops somewhere. Um, and, and these things they now have a social consequence and a market cost uh, for these people who, who who believe in that. And the real question comes down to this, and we say this a lot: America or Trump. And if you believe that the Confederacy is a valid campaign issue and you're Donald Trump, fight it out. See how it goes for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the one thing. So back in 2016, I wrote this thing called the lost boys. Mm-hmm. And it was about like that Trump had allowed the, the van well, Trump was the vampire that the Republican party invited into the house. Right. And like, yeah, yeah. so now, and all the, all the vampires started coming out of the woodwork. And, and what I think you see in, in the context of now, you know, three and a half, four years later, is that for for a lot of those folks, Trump has made it socially acceptable to be the guy, you know, the big guy screaming at the old lady in Walmart that he's or in Costco that he's being threatened. 
you know, and, and what people are realizing is, wait a second, those people were vampires in the woods and they stayed in the woods for a reason. Like we don't want, we don't like them. Right. And, and I think that's the thing. It's like, there is such a thing as community. There is such a thing as, as society. Yeah. And that means not going out of your way to be an asshole to everybody around you just because you think you can be. And so I think that, and it's also, you know, it's not just the guys in the Costco. It's also, you know, old white rich guys who drive around in blacked out Range Rovers with don't tread on me stickers on them. Like these people have never been tread on in their lives. And so the idea that somehow they're being oppressed because Joe Biden said all people are created equal instead of all men are created equal just shows you sort of the pathology that Trump engenders and the the foxes and the OANNs of the world and the Breitbarts and the and the uh, Alex Jones tinfoil hats love to just trade on because it gives it, it it took away the social penalty for being an ugly human being. There was a, there was a, a sort of culture that developed on the right post Tea Party um, that tried to play this sort of this this game of spectacle where you know, I'm going to be offensive because I, that, you know, I'm not going to be owned by you civilized libtard cucks. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to burn it all down and I'm going to show you how transgressive I can be. And, and Trump won an election basically trolling the shit out of America. And so they, for a while, have felt very empowered by this thing. Yeah. And, and they felt very empowered to be adjacent to things that are even uglier. Because, you know, you scratch the Confederate flag, guys, and and 75% of them are just good old boy idiots. Mm-hmm. Um, but you scratch 25% of them and they are boogaloo guys and alt writers and, mm-hmm. and the people that are, that, that uh, show up in Charlottesville. And, mm-hmm. and those people felt, don't forget Richard Spencer, one of the leaders of the alt right um, and guys like Jack Posobiec uh, that, that were all leaders of the alt right. They went out and, and they thought Trump was going to be this, this transformative leader on ethnic nationalism. And I mean, never forget Richard Spencer sat in a hotel ballroom uh, doing the Hitler salute, yelling Heil Trump right after he was elected. And this was a room full of hundreds of people who were Trump supporters, yeah. hundreds of them. So they tried to normalize this. They tried to rationalize it. And they thought it was fun trolling. They thought their transgression was part of, of a new political movement. Part of the show, and, right? Part of the show, and now you know th- that that is blown back on them. I think rather severely. On Wednesday morning, Trump took to Twitter to attack the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's guidance for opening schools, saying, "I disagree with the CDC on their very tough and expensive guidelines for opening schools. While they want them to open, they are asking schools to do very impractical things." Trump also threatened to pull federal funding from schools that do not reopen. And the CDC has issued a nine-page checklist for schools to determine their readiness to open, assess their daily and weekly policies for reopening, and plan a response in the event someone does get the virus. Their guidance offered suggestions on essential supplies for schools, developing plans for daily health checks, and cohorting students to limit mixing students in different classes. Read, as a parent, there's an obvious need for your children to be educated and to return to some form of normalcy. How do you balance that against the risk of COVID? And how do comments like these from Trump shape the way you see CDC guidelines? Are they still trustworthy? And how are you thinking about it? Well, this? I would say that the CDC guidelines are trustworthy. And I think what you're seeing from, uh, and I, unfortunately, I can't remember the director's name, is there, what, 
I think what they're saying is this is what we believe and I'll be damned if regardless of who I ultimately work for, I'm not going to tell the American people how they should and must stay safe when they send their kids back to school. And if the president wants to fire me for it, then he can go ahead and do that. But I think they see, you know, I think that what they're starting to see, you know, albeit maybe a little bit belatedly, given how many people have died, is that, you know what, they have a they have a duty to the to the people first and the president second or maybe third. Um, And so I think that that's what you're seeing. Uh, you know, for Trump, it's a it's all a political calculation, right? I think they're desperately trying to find ways to get back in with uh, suburban mothers, not unlike my wife, who you know had to homeschool for three or four months, and you know found it very frustrating. Um, you know, and and you know, it's it everybody was out of sorts. Um, I you know everybody says they're going to go back to school. You know, my sense is is that you know it could be if everybody let's just say everybody's supposed to go back to school August fifteenth. You know, on August 13th, they're going to say, ah, don't know about that. Um, And so I think that it's one of those where, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning around the book, which is he he fundamentally is unable to care or have concern for not only the kids, uh, but also for the, you know, the administrators, for the custodial folks, for the teachers who may be elderly. You know, the kids, kids are certainly getting sick. They sit, they tend to be less affected by it. I don't want to say they're not affected, less affected by it. But that doesn't mean that you can't have 20 kids in a classroom who then go infect, you know, their 68 year old teacher, um, who then takes it home to her 72 year old husband. And, you know, then it's all downhill from there. And so I think it's just one more, frankly, example of an inhumanity that you can't really comprehend, uh, unless we were living through it. I, I think Reed's very on point with that. And, you know, I, I'm fortunate my kids are grown they're out. Um, but I know a lot of folks with kids, uh, who've been raising them while working and teaching them while working. And it has been an enormous stressor on a lot of Americans that said, um, you're seeing the rise of additional cases of COVID, not a decline. Um, this has an enormous possibility to be problematic. Um, I have a source from CDC who's provided us with some great information in the past who said that the fight inside was nearly a mutiny this week because the the idea that the White House was going to to crush down public health information uh, and and basically say to them uh, do this for us politically um, has really led to almost a breaking point there. And there's nothing there's nothing that Trump won't do for political advantage. It should always be kept in mind. If he was told tomorrow. Okay, if you do this, it's going to increase the the infection rate. You're going to you're going to end up killing X number of more people. It wouldn't matter. It reads right. He doesn't have the ability to understand the world outside of himself. He doesn't have the ability to understand or care about anyone but himself. And so, you know, what could go wrong? You're going to end up having kids on school buses again. You're going to end up having kids in crowded classrooms again. You know, and as we all know from having children, social distancing with children is really effective, and they always wear masks when they're told. Of course, it's going to be it's going to work out just fine. right. But I do think the most important question is: if prison is too uh, dangerous, if a crowded prison is too dangerous for Paul Manafort, how is a crowded classroom safe for kids? Oh. I'm sorry, I don't buy right. It. Right. And I, and again, I think that, you know, there was a survey out of Texas. It was either earlier this week or late last week that said, and remember that Texas is exploding. Houston in particular is just yeah. a, is just yeah. a, is ground zero right now. It's got 
one of the largest medical centers in the world and they're out of ICU beds. I mean, just think about that. Um, That said 65% of Texans said they did not believe that it was safe to send their kids back to school. Now, you know, you could say a lot of things about Texas. Like Texans are tend to be very common sense oriented. They are not hair on fire type people, despite what you might think of Greg Abbott or 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 that stooge Dan Patrick. You know, they they understand things, <laughs> um, and they also understand that like they're they're worried, and as well we all should be. Um, and so, you know, I'm going to put my my daughter on a bus with 30 other kids. Like I just, yeah. I mean, my guess is we'll drive her to school, and that's fine, right? Like I'm happy to do that. Um, but you know, I'm also hearing from where I live that, you know, kids are going to stay in the class, their classrooms. Um, you know, the teachers will rotate through, they'll eat lunch in their classrooms. They won't basically walk the halls. Uh, and so, you know, that presents a whole other set of issues, which is, you know, my kids are younger than this, but you're going to tell, you know, 35, 14 year olds, they're going to sit in the same room for eight hours a day. Like that's going to be, that's going to present its own issues. And so it's just, Good luck. It's just one of those things where, you know, and the, the costs of, you know, cleaning, um, all of these things when, you know, a lot of school districts are scraping by as it is because whether or not it's property tax revenue or sales tax, whatever the tax base was, is sort of drying up. Now you're going to say, okay, you got to quadruple or quintuple your cleaning staff in order to bring them in and hose down things every night. It's just, it's, a, it's it, you know what it is ultimately? It is the it is the middle result because we're far from the end. It is the middle result of the president being unwilling to listen or unable, I should say, he, he, willingness never came into yeah. it, unable to listen to the people he needed to listen to and do the things he needed to do. And this is where we are: spiking infections, mm-hmm. questions about school. But ultimately, it all comes down to him saying, "I want this done, and I don't care, and I'll threaten you with the powers I have in order to make you do something, regardless if it makes your you know your kids sick." or your kid's teacher sick, or communities worse off. It's just, it's, you know, it would be unbelievable if it weren't, if we weren't where we are. I mean, obviously it, it's, it's devastating to the American people that we can't trust this administration to provide science-based guidelines for what to do during a pandemic. And, and I was going to ask you what the danger is of letting politics drive policy on such a serious topic, but it seems almost generous to say that politics is driving policy here because it seems to be Donald Trump's pathology that is driving policy. I mean, there's no policy other than, you know, whatever gets the base ginned up. I mean, that's it. Yeah, right? what, what impulse, what impulse drives him for the day is policy. And, and what, what shiny object captures his attention in the morning is policy. Um, and I, I spoke to somebody a couple of months ago who had been a, in a mid tier job in, a, in an agency who reached out to me and said, I said, I spent two years, I needed the gig. I'm sorry, man, I needed the gig. But I spent two years writing policy things that would go to the White House, and then I would never hear from them again. They just disappear. There is no policy. And look, personnel is often policy in administrations, Mm -hmm. like who you put in different agencies often determines the policy outcomes. Well, for the most part, the people that, that have gotten appointments in Trump world are just people that tweeted nice things about him. You know, and so there, there's no real intellectual underpinning to anything there. There's no real policy there, other than what gets shoveled over the transom by lobbyists, right? Uh, at places like EPA and and, and health and human and services, interior. yeah, yeah, and interior, especially, yeah, 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 exactly. So, last last question while we're on this topic, but there's a there's a clear correlation 
between reopening schools and reopening many other sectors of the economy. And I think it's pretty obvious that we can't really expect people to go back to work if they can't send their kids to school. Uh, how, how are you guys thinking about the balance between those two, regardless of what the administration says? This, again, is one thing where the folks who are least able to contend with the you know, yeah. sociological and economic issues are the ones who most have to contend with them. So if you have two working parents, no childcare you can afford, right? And you, and you, and you can't go, you can't, you want, somebody has to stay home because somebody's got to watch the kids. Then that means, okay. I mean, all that stuff rolls downhill. Now it's harder to pay the rent. It's harder to pay for food. All of these things, you know, they say they're going to have one more relief package before the end of the summer. Um, you know, it's going to be smaller because now Mitch McConnell's worried about the deficit, right? Which is just like la <clears throat> laughable on its face. I mean, Republican yeah. Republicans in Congress are like the kids whose parents gave them a $25,000 credit card and said, you know, you're never going to have to pay this back. Maybe, you know, a limitless credit card and said, don't worry about paying it back. Right. And so that's, you know, so I think that there's a lot of stress there. I think there's a lot of stress on everybody, regardless of where you are. Again, if you the you know, human beings don't deal with uncertainty well, right? It's not, it's literally not in our right. DNA. We like, right. that's why right. routines are helpful, right? Because yeah. the stress of having to figure everything out every morning would be exhausting in and of itself, right? And I think that's yeah. where you're seeing a lot of folks across the country, across demographics, whatever it is. And so I think now mm. what we're going to see is that we're going to have more folks staying home, more kids staying home. And I think that we have unfortunately not yet seen what I believe is a, an economic tsunami that is, it is making its way for our shores metaphorically that, you know, whether or not it's on the service industry yet again, whether or not it's in the commercial real estate industry as, you know, those small shops and coffee shops and cafes have to shut down again, probably never going to come back. People aren't going to be able to pay their rent, which means those commercial real estate owners are not going to be able to pay their note which means the banks are not going to be able to pay whatever Wall Street thing they shoved it off to. And so it just becomes this sort of cascade of, of yeah. terribleness that I'm afraid, um, you know, will hit us, you know, probably in the next couple of, you know, couple months. And I think that that's, and, and again, we will see a president who is unable to deal with it because for him, remember, this is a guy who defaulted on just about every goddamn commercial thing he ever did. So for him, it's just part of the deal. And look, right now, 25% of renters in New York, commercial and private, have paid zero rent since March. That is unsustainable over time. Um, in Florida, uh, re residential real estate sales are down 44% in April. Wow. Now, when the May and June numbers hit, it is going to look really grim. There was a lot of stuff that was in the sort of pipeline. So you're going to see a crash out of commercial real estate sales and, and, and residential sales across the country. Mm. You're going to see people who are unable to, to, to make their mortgages. You're going to see a wave of bankruptcies. You're going to see a wave of foreclosures. Um, you're going to see a, 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 a as Reed said, a, a tsunami of economic distress. And, you know, another $1,200 check, uh, regardless of what Steve Mnuchin thinks, is not going to cut it. All right, let's look at the week ahead. Rick, what stories are you watching going into the following? Uh, I am watching for whether or not the president pulls the plug on the RNC in Jacksonville. It is getting uh, increasingly dodgy that they're going to be able to pull it off. Uh, Florida's COVID infection rate is racing up the, up the chain uh, 
the, the, the curve is nearly vertical right now in Florida. We are having a very bad uh, 1.5 wave of COVID in the state. Uh, even the local officials who are staunchly pro-Trump, and just just so you know, the mayor of of my our Jacksonville, which is a Duval County in Jacksonville, a unified district. So he's the mayor of Jacksonville, Florida, named Lenny Curry. He really wants to run statewide in Florida, and so that's why he's sucking up to Trump and saying yes to all this. Um, every member of the medical community there, all the public health people there, all the business community there, they're like, please, for the love of God, no, don't come here. Um, but I think I, that's one thing I'm keeping my eye on because it, it will also tell us, you know, how Trump's future rally situation is going to look in other places. I'm also watching, see how this weekend's rally in New Hampshire goes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Reed, what are you watching? Um, I think just, you know, how the continuing COVID and, you know, lack of reality around it from the administration continues to play out. Um, you know, the president tweets out, you know, like, I mean, look, it is, it is good news that not as many Americans are dying, but that's also because unfortunately the, the virus hasn't caught up with all of those folks yet. And so I think that it's just, it's just a further sort of detachment from reality about where we are, um, you know, in a, as a country. Um, but also wanting to see now, you know, Rick talks about the convention, you know, how these things are going to play out for the next 117, 16 days, wherever we are now, which is, you know, everything we've known about politics is out the window. You know, look, I spent five weeks in Palm Beach County during the 2000 recount, and I thought that was the craziest (laughs) thing I'd ever be a part of, right? And every year since then has been crazier than the last. And so we should not expect that the next hundred and some days are going to be anything less than absolutely insane. I think you're going to see that that Trump's supporters, and I noted this, um, there was an article by Tim Miller in Rolling Stone where he talked about he talked to several different Republican consultants in Washington D.C. You're starting to see, ironically, a lot of these folks harden in their support of Trump because they realize how you know that they have no place to go without him, but they have no place to go with him. So they've chosen to chain themselves to the rock and like hope that it floats. And so I think it's a fascinating exposition into like not only Republican psychology, but the Republican, the business of Republican politics inside the beltway and see where these folks go a month from now, if he's not at 39 or 40, but he's at 33, you know, which would be historically awful and whether or not they, you know, they finally throw off the shackles, but I'm certainly not counting on it. Yeah. It's a great piece that, and we can put a link to that in the, in the, in the show notes here. Sorry, go ahead, Rick. Um, yeah, look, there were still Vichy in France, even as the, even as the first armored was rolling towards Paris in World War II, who were pretending that everything was fine. And there are going to yeah. be people in that consultocracy in DC who privately criticize the president, but they work for the RNC or they work for the Trump campaign or they work for one of the Trump super PACs. And, and, they're stubbornly uh, so dug in on this, and there there has not been anything in my lifetime on the Republican side. Even in 2006, we knew the badness was coming, yeah. um, but we were all sort of resigned to it. The war had gone wrong in so many ways, and it just wasn't going to work. And, and Katrina, uh, yeah, and Katrina. Uh, but no one was had that sense of like stubborn. You know, Bush is doing great; everything's fine. We were all sort of like, oh, God, here it comes and working to sort of mitigate it. Now, in this case, as Reed says, there are these guys who are who are looking out onto the terrain ahead of them. They know how bad it is, but they're like, you know, screw it. He can pull off a miracle, maybe. 
And uh, those Lincoln Project guys are never getting back in was the quote in that article. And I just, mm-hmm. I'm going to frame it. I'm going to frame it. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, did they not see the, you know, the, the burned ashes of the boats on the beach? I'm not sure what else they need to know about us. Right. Right. It's like, yeah. yeah. Do, do we, do we look like we want to come back to your, to your, to your playground kids? We do not. There's one other story. Yeah. There's one other story, uh, that, that I, that I saw that I'm, you know, I, I'm paying attention to the vote by mail stuff, uh, very closely. And there was a story that broke yesterday about Lara and Eric Trump. This is, this is after Donald Trump has so emphatically raged against the security of vote by mail, which is completely false. Lara and Eric Trump encouraged Californian voters to vote by mail in a special election, uh, I think via robocalls. So uh, I, don't, I don't know if you guys saw that, but what, what do you make of that? I, I really hope that, that Republican voters listen to this president and don't vote by mail. That I think that would be a. I think they should follow the dear leader's instructions and do not do that devilish voting by mail. It's bad and wrong. Yeah, they should definitely not do that. And it and it and it just <laughs> speaks to it speaks to, you know, the the president's just inability to understand things electorally. Um, this is how Republicans bank votes. This is how they chase their ballots. This is how they sharpen their targeting and make it more efficient and more cost effective. And he just doesn't. He can't. He can't comprehend it. It's just. It's just. First of all, it's too down in the weeds. Second of all, he just doesn't believe it, right? It's just not, he's not capable of it. So, um, yeah, look, if, if the, if the Republicans in Western Michigan want to keep burning their absentee ballot applications, you know, I I guess that's what they're going to do. And, you know, he doesn't have a lot of margins in these places to be fooling around with this stuff, but that would denote a, an ability to conceive of how, what you're doing is hurting you, uh, fundamentally. And he's never going to do that. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.